Well, thanks everybody. It's good to be here again. And Liz sends her apologies. Um, my dad's not too well at the moment and Liz is at home supporting mum, support dad. So uh, let's pray as we come to hear and meditate on God's word to us. Father, your word is truth. In hearing your word, we, we find the reality of you, the reality of ourselves and the reality of life. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, you'll give us ears to hear those words and that the life of your Spirit may enter us anew. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that this leading member of the community came and asked Jesus. He was a ruler, so he had some kind of position of authority in the community, possibly a religious one. And we learn as the encounter proceeds that he's also very rich. So he's a bit of a mover and shaker. He's one of the important guys in town. And he asks this very interesting question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's got something of uh, this idea of an inheritance and something about life, inheriting eternal life. I don't hear many people ask that question today, do you? I certainly don't hear people coming up to me saying, good teacher, for a start. <laughs> One of the things that doesn't happen. But uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It is a good question, but it's not one that we hear often. I wonder if it's one that you've asked. That phrase, eternal life, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It literally means uh, the life of the ages or the life of the eons. So it's actually where we get our, that word eternal is where we get our same root that we get our word eons from. And an eon is an immense amount of time, isn't it? And so what do I do so that my life, he's really asking, what do I do so that my life and its significance doesn't just end with the grave? How can my life have significance beyond that? How can I get there? He obviously has a sense or a conviction that this life and all that's in it was not the sum of existence. There was, he was sure, a life beyond this, a, an existence to come. And uh, uh, an existence that has some significance and importance. We'll talk about that a bit as we go, go further. Now, a wise minister once recounted to me a conversation he had when he was speaking to a young man at uni who'd come to him for counsel. He wasn't a Christian guy. And so this minister asked him, what he, ha what he hoped for, well, he said, when I finished school, I wanted to get to uni, so here I am. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, well, what do you want to do when you finish uni? Well, I hope that I'll get a good job, work my way up and make a good living. And then he said, and what then? Well, it'd be really nice to get married and have kids, buy a house, get a boat, all the, all the dreams. And then, well... It'd be great to be able to um, travel, so I'd like to retire early, explore this world in which we live, 
and to have lots of experiences, especially while my health is good. Maybe his parents were getting older. And then what next? Well, I guess... Um, uh, I don't really know. Um, I guess I'll die. And what then? Oh, I don't like to think about that. Interesting conversation. I reckon that's really where our culture is, isn't it? It's in that unthinking about the ages to come. We have a big word around in, in politics, in community building. It's all this whole thing called human flourishing. Have you heard that phrase around at all? I seem to hear it everywhere at the moment. It's driving me balmy. And human flourishing means just having a really good, satisfying, fulfilled life here and now. And I don't think that's a bad thing, by the way. But it, that's all it is. Um, there was, yeah, anyway. So this man who asked Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit the life of the ages? He was a lot wiser, I think, than our age. At least he was asking a question that went beyond the 85 or whatever the average age span is now for an Australian. He knew that there was an important matter that lay beyond the grave, the question of life into the ages. He wanted to think about it. He knew somehow that the answer to this question would probably be the key to the meaning of his life here and now. If he could answer that question, it would reshape how he would think about life here and now. He knew this from something very deep within, is my guess. I, I think at some point we all kind of ask that question without asking it. We kind of, like we sometimes we ask, what does this all, what does, what does my life amount to? What does it mean? What's its significance? And you see, somewhere deep inside us, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of humanity. So it's a kind of a question that haunts us all the time. God's placed the ages in our heart. There's something deep down in us that says there has to be something more than just the here and now. We kind of, in Australia, we satiate that. We put that down. We kind of fill that, that question by the endless acquisition of things, the endless doing of things. <laughs> God has put eternity in the hearts of humanity. This rich ruler, though, also knew that this was an important question because as a Jew, he knew that God had made promises to his people that spoke about a future that was more than just life in the, the span of life that you have before you, you shuffle off this mortal coil. God, through the history of his people, through the scriptures, had made clear, running through it all was written, a growing and blossoming story that there was a world to come, an age to come which would be an, an inheritance for God's people, a world, this world actually, made new, a world in which there would be no more crying or sin or death or pain or evil anymore. 
it will just be the life of the ages is a life of bliss and fullness. That's this line that runs through and grows and grows through the Old Testament. And so this man comes and he asks Jesus his question. He asked it as a rich man. What do you know about people who've got rich? Basically, they're the masters of the deal, aren't they? They know how to do a deal. On my way up here, I've been listening to a book called Moneyball. I don't know if anybody ever saw the money, uh, the movie Moneyball. It's about how baseball was transformed by people who didn't go by intuition, but he just looked at the cold, hard facts of what actually happened on a baseball field and what that then said about players. And so this guy developed ways of analysing and quantifying the value of various actions that a, a baseball player could do and worked out that you could buy really cheap um, baseball players who people overlooked on the basis of intuition or look who would do a much better job than some of the really expensive players that all the pe people were selling out enormous amounts of money for. So really, it's a fascinating book. It's got all my favourite things. It's got sport and statistics. It's great. Anyway, this guy's a master of the deal. He knows how to sell his ideas too and also how to when he's trying to get players that cheaply he knows how to pitch that so that people don't think he's really interested you know it's just kind of a, a side thing that may a backup plan or something like that and um master of the trade and i think this man you know he's very rich he has great wealth as it says he's been the master of the deal all his life he's amassed quite a fortune and um that means he views life as transactions. I do this, you do that. We come to an agreement. I get something, you get something. I think sometimes that's the way we think about God. Transactional, contractual. I'll do this, God will do that. We've got a contract and it works out pretty well for both of us. Just let me ask you, when you... Um, Love the Lord, God, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. What does God get out of it? What benefit have you brought to God? None. God is full in himself. You, you cannot add to God. It's one of the most important Christian doctrines you can ever really get hold of is that God is complete and full in himself. He lacks nothing, which means that he is entirely giver. In, in our relationship, he is entirely giver. It's not contractual. And this man is thinking, so if I do this, then God will give me eternal life. So it's kind of contractual, you know. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's entirely the wrong way around of thinking. That is, yeah. But we, we think that all the time. Just yesterday, I was talking to a man, and good on him. He's been praying for a friend of his who has uh, severe cancer. And he, he and some friends have pledged, you know, they'll uh, fast and pray three days a week for this man. And, and he said it's working. Now, that's a contractual view. It's kind of like we've done something and we've made something happen. Rather, I mean, I think what you could say is God's been kind. And they somehow, in their fasting of praying, have been caught up 
into God's kindness. It's not contractual. It's not like they've, in a way, it's not like they've even, they certainly they've not forced God's hand by what they've been doing. You know, but good on them. And I, I think God has answered their prayers. But that's out of the fullness of God and not out of the accomplishment of their fasting and praying. So he's a bit of a traitor, this guy. So that's one thing that's going on for him. He doesn't actually know God, that means. If, if you think of God that way, you don't know God. God is the Father of lights, from whom every good gift comes down from heaven. So, but it is a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question because it, it kind of exposes the way he thinks. And Jesus uh, answers this question firstly by kind of correcting it. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. See, the man may be thinking, well, I'm good, God's good, let's make a deal. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it is. No one's good except for God. There's something in this man's heart that's awry. He seems to think that he can tell who is good from his standpoint. Yeah, well, I'm pretty good. So I, I, I recognise a good person when I see one. And, uh, and God's good. So, yeah, let's... And, um, and he looks at Jesus and thinks, well, you, you seem to be pretty good too. And so you look like you know about eternal life. You must have, you must have worked out the deal because you look good. So how, you know, what's the secret of, of winning this deal? It's kind of what he's asking. And Jesus says, no, no, you, why do you call me good? No one's good except for God. It's not on the basis of goodness. He tells the man uh, what he already knows. So he gives an answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you, why do you call me good? No one's good except for God alone. You know the commandments. And I'll just read what he says. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. Now, I'm presuming you know the Bible reasonably well and maybe you know the Ten Commandments. Um, you would have heard, I guess, that there are two tables of the law. The first table of the law deals with our relationship with God and the second with our relationships in this world. So what Jesus has basically done is outline the second table of the law, but he's left one off. What one has he left off? Coveting. Coveting. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, your neighbour's uh, livestock, your neighbour's wife, I think, is in there too, um, or anything that is your neighbour's. Now, what does a trader do? He's always looking at what he can get. There's something intensely covetous about that. So Jesus hasn't mentioned that. <laughs> he's just left that one aside, but he's mentioned all the others. And he hasn't, of course, dealt with the first table of the law, which is that you shall have no other gods before me. I reckon that the Ten Commandments... Got, you shall have no other gods before me, right? I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And then you shall not covet anything. They're pretty, uh, they're pretty good bookends, aren't they? This is kind of, if you have no other gods but God, 
you won't be coveting anything. You'll be receiving what God gives. So, just did that there. Um, and uh, Jesus is really saying to them, well, if you do this, you'll, I think he's implying, if you do this, you'll inherit eternal life. Or what he says actually is you'll have eternal life. I think that's what he says there. Uh, it doesn't say it there. Uh, he says, um, yeah, you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Oh, he says it to Peter later on. No, oh, sorry, I'm all up a waddle there. We'll just leave that there. <laughs> um, I think this man finds that question a dismaying one. Yeah, or that statement. You know the commandment. Here they are. He says, well, I've done all that. I've been a good boy. Ever since I was a youth, ever since I was responsible for my actions, I've done all that. I've never committed adultery. I've never killed anyone. I've never stolen anything. I've never borne false witness to my advantage. I've never dishonored my parents. I've been a good boy. And so, you've got to give me more than that. You've just met me where I am and I've come to you with this question. Like, what Jesus has done by saying that is actually exposed the issue for him. He's lived a moral, exemplary, ethical life, so why does he still have this nagging sense of uncertainty about where he's going? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus hears the quiet despair underneath the man's reply. So don't believe any Australian who says they're just happy with life the way it is. Because underneath that there is some quiet despair. And at some point that will come out. Nor does he, you know, seeing the man's kind of quiet despair, he doesn't cave into some treacly sentimentality. God loves you though. It doesn't go that way. He presses even harder into the issue. He puts his finger right on the sore spot with this man. One thing you lack. Now, we've already heard what the one thing that the list of the law lacked, didn't we? Which was this thing about coveting. So, one thing you lack. And he's really saying, by lacking that one thing, you actually lack everything. Sell everything you have. Distribute it to the poor. And then come and follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. You see, Jesus is facing this man with the real question. Do you really want eternal life? Does the life of the ages really matter to you? It's, is it a matter of life or death to you? Or is it more just a kind of icing on the cake of a comfortable and settled life here? You know, you've got a good job, lovely family, nice house, great experiences, just like that young man was wanting all of his life. Does it really matter to you to know eternal life? In John's Gospel, 
in chapter uh, 17, I think, Jesus, he says, um, on the night he's betrayed, he prays this great high priestly prayer. And he says, um, you've given to your son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So to, to get us into the, the life of the ages is to not be in some transaction with God, but to be in some relationship with God. To know God as God, and to know his son, and to know the gift of God. The rich ruler had set, settled for something far less than God was promising. The life of the ages, eternal life, is life lived in participation in the very heart and reality of God. Some of the old theologians, you don't hear it talked about so much anymore, they talked about the, deist, the hope of the beatific vision, that we will see God, know God, with all of our being, know him in the immensity of his being. The heart and reality of God. That is, eternal life is a life that is lived in participation in God's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and selflessness. Coming to know God as that God and then finding yourself caught up into the, that life. Eternal life isn't just an endless number of days like a calendar that doesn't run out doing what we've already always been doing. That would be hell. Eternal life is being caught up into the fullness of all that God is and living in that. Yeah, for, for, forever, into the ages. The rich ruler's sadness at Jesus' words showed that his morality and ethics had all been under the proviso. I'll do what God says so long as it works out well for me. That's really what it, you know, I'll do this so long as it works out for me. God's love God's whole way of being has never had that proviso on it. God has never loved you saying, I'll love you so long as it works out well for me. It doesn't work out well for God to love us. Here we are, Palm Sunday. And uh, in five days' time, we're going to see just how well it works out for God to love the world. How well it works out for him. And, and God doesn't go through Palm Sunday ruining, oh, hell, I wish I hadn't done that. That is the heart of God. That's the reality of God's utter selflessness. And if you were caught up into God's utter selflessness and then you heard a man say, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me, you kind of wouldn't balk at that, would you? You'd have to know the love of God to know that you could be caught up into such love. 
God's love is selfless love. We see that so much in Jesus. Love that came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Love that empties itself. I've just been reading this. Uh, lots of discussion in theology about that passage from Philippians 2. Um, have that mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped hold of and held tight, but rather emptied himself and became a servant, taking the form uh, of a man, I'm getting this a bit wrong, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. Therefore God has given him the name that is above every name. You see, Jesus didn't do that despite being God. It's because he was in very nature God that he did that. And he pours himself out. And it's not uh, that he's just kind of divesting himself of things. But what he's doing is he's pouring himself out for us. He's pouring himself out into this life of service. And that's the way of God. And the Father, in giving his Son, pours himself out in the giving of the Son. If the Father gives up his Son, what does the Father have left? Do you remember when David um, heard about the death of his son Absalom in the Old Testament? And he laments Absalom's death. My son, my son, Absalom, my son whom I loved, Absalom. And here's Jesus, God's son, his son, his only son, the son whom he loved. The father gives up, pours out his fatherhood in the son pouring out of his sonship. For us, for our benefit, for our good, he pours himself out into our good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark of participation in the life of God. The rich ruler wasn't halfway good. He was curved in on himself. Even his obedience was a self-serving obedience and we're all in the same boat. Jesus looked at this man with great compassion. How hard it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to scrunch itself up into a tiny, I don't know how a camel would do this, but scrunch itself up and squeeze itself through the eye of a needle. If ever you hear that, by the way, that there was a gate called the eye of the needle in Jerusalem, that was medieval, as like nearly a millennium after these events. So uh, uh, it's really actually, you know, because if it was a gate, it was a very low gate apparently, the, the eye of the needle, and a, a camel could, if it bent, you know, kind of scrunched itself, could get through if it tried hard. Jesus isn't saying, you know, if you try hard enough, you'll get in. You know, he's saying you just can't. It's easier for a camel to become like a, the, the 
thinnest, thinnest filament, the passes through the tightest fibre needle. There's no way. Who can enter the kingdom? If this rich man with all the trappings, as the world counts them as a blessed life, all the trappings which we think say God's on this person's side, if he can't enter the kingdom, who can? Jesus told a parable just prior to this passage in early on in chapter 18, 9 to 14, about who could know God's approval and be brought into the future bliss of God. He told them this parable to he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Maybe this rich rulers in this category, you see. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, keeper of the law, supposedly, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, You know, those extortioners, those unjust people, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I, face twi I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I'm halfway good. Meet me halfway, Lord. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even go to the temple. How could he desecrate it? Um... He lifts up his eyes to heaven. He doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's got his head down and he's beating his breast. Oh. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he doesn't mean... you humbling yourself into something that you're not, just recognising your poor and humble estate, <laughs> knowing who and where you are. That's why trusting in the merciful God who's made himself known in Jesus. Jesus, who's speaking to this rich, young man, this rich ruler, is in the next chapter going to enter Jerusalem and become the one who will pour himself out for others. He loves him. So the one, it's not the one who's confident in their moral superiority, nor the one who's pretty sure they've done a good job of most of the commandments, keeping them, maybe a few slip-ups, but nothing really serious. Nothing that God should really get his knickers in a knot about. No, it's not that one. It's the one who knows they have no claim on God, but can only cast themselves on the merciful one who enters the kingdom of heaven. They've got to cast themselves on the lowly one, the one who's going to come alongside sinners, failures and incompetence, forgiving sins and making all things new. With a God like this, all things are possible. <laughs> a God like this, the God we meet in Jesus Christ, the God who humbles himself as a servant and enters our mess to clear it away and renew it, renew us in the life of God, the life of the ages, eternal life.
So you see then, coming to Jesus and following him, we have a completely new perspective on how we live our lives. We follow Jesus now along the road of pouring out ourselves for the good and benefit of others. What does it mean you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, with every bit of you? Well, it will mean that you pour yourself out. My guess is if you're like me, the most painful thing that you know about yourself is how selfish you are how so often you'll just pull back from doing that thing that's just going to take more out of you than you're prepared to give. That's not the God we need. And the God we need in Jesus is the one who opened for us the life of the ages. Have you thought about that? That eternal life is going to be an eternity of everything pouring themselves out for the blessing of others. I can't imagine the bliss of that. I can't imagine anything more glorious than you. Like, um, just think my time, I'm a bit over time. But <laughs> look, um, I had a vision once uh, in my church when I was pastoring out at Largs Bay and uh, it was during a communion service and um, uh, uh, so I was just sitting there praying and um, during the during the Sunday service, and it was like I saw that outside the church, it was like a nuclear wasteland. It was all ash and dust. All the trees were scorched. There was smoke rising everywhere. And there was a refugee couple and their little children with a little suitcase, and they were knocking on the door of our church. And we opened the door, and they came in. And what, when they came in, what happened was that it was like the whole church had light bouncing. Like, I don't know where the light was coming from, but it was shooting around. It was just filling the room. There was this reflected light coming everywhere, going into people and out of them and filling the whole room. And these people came into this. And it was like they were immersed into the love of God. Well, that's us in Jesus. We're immersed into the love of God. And that's what we're called to be then in the world. This, you've got your communities. You've got this congregation. You're called to be a community of selflessness. Not to try and rise up to that, but in the gift of Jesus to you, the gift of the Spirit, you're called into this selflessness. Peter, who's been listening to Jesus, talk to this man and he says, well, Jesus, look, we left everything and followed you. Uh, we gave it all up and followed you. And uh, kind of like, <laughs> you know, he's got it wrong too. No, no, Jesus said, look, you, you've, lo you've lost nothing. Give up everything, you lose nothing. In fact, what do you do? You find yourself. Give up everything in love to the Lord and in love to others find everything. You find eternal life. You'll have eternal life. Come, you have the life of the ages. If you believe in Jesus, you have the life of the ages come into you here and now. A life of eternal selflessness and love. So, what about us? 
That rich young ruler there had a moment of crisis in these words of Jesus. So what about us? We follow Jesus, I trust. We believe in him. We believe in him. We know that he's the one who forgives our sins and brings us to God. So do we see in Jesus the glory of the ages to come? a world of self-giving love in endless motion? Will we receive the truth that Jesus brings to us, that there's only one way into that future, through him, the one who's come for our forgiveness? Jesus says it's a narrow way. It's as narrow as the gate, uh, of as the eye of a needle. <laughs> it's that narrow, but... And so it's impossible for us, but God's done this wonderful thing. His word of truth has come to us. We've believed him. He's taken us through that narrow gate. And what lies ahead of us, what's opened up for us through that narrow eye of a needle, that faith in Jesus, is an, this eternal future that's begun now. It's begun now. This eternal future of love, Love, love. Amen.